This is a recording of The Joseph Smith Papers Project Stumbles by John Gee, published in Interpreter, a journal of Latter-day Saint faith and scholarship. Read by Steve Metcalf. Abstract. Volume 4 of the Revelations and Translations series of the Joseph Smith Papers doesn't live up to the standards set in previous volumes. While the production values are still top-notch, the actual content is substandard. Problems fill the volume, including misplaced photographs and numerous questionable transcriptions beyond the more than 200 places where the editors admitted they could not read the documents. For this particular volume, producing it incorrectly is arguably worse than not producing it at all. The Joseph Smith Papers Project has developed a well-deserved reputation for excellence in every aspect of publication. Fantastic photographs, faithful transcriptions, Helpful notes and top-quality paper and bindings have all been standard issue. This is a tremendous heritage to live up to, and each new volume comes out with eager anticipation. The volume under review, Volume 4 of the Revelations and Translations series, contains a number of documents that have been known to historians for at least 50 years, but many of them have never been properly published and have never before been officially published. The volume begins with a lengthy introduction that attempts to set the documents into historical context. This is followed by the individual documents with accompanying short introductions. The documents are organized into groups. Egyptian papyri, notebooks of copied Egyptian characters, copies of Egyptian characters, Egyptian alphabet documents, grammar and alphabet of the Egyptian language, book of Abraham manuscripts, circa July, circa November, 1835, Book of Abraham Manuscripts, circa February, circa 15 March, 1842, and facsimile printing plates and published Book of Abraham. Reference material at the end of the volume includes Book of Abraham chronology for the years 1835 and 1842, works cited, and comparison of characters. References for the introduction are given as footnotes, but references in the other sections are gathered as endnotes at the end of each section. This makes references difficult to locate, although that may not be a bad thing. Readers should carefully note that the list of works cited is not a comprehensive bibliography on the volume's subject matter, and is thus missing several major works. On the surface, this volume appears to conform to the standards of the previous volumes, but in the details that's not the case. There's much in the volume with which one could and perhaps should quibble. I won't be able to spend much time on the numerous questionable editorial decisions or scholarship evident in the volume. I will, however, note that the editors chose to completely relabel the documents from their historical names, which will sow much confusion in discussions, but they provided no concordance of other major labels for the documents, as is standard in scholarly editions. Instead, I will simply list a sample of known problems in the volume. I've previously done a letter-by-letter -letter transcription of the documents based on high-resolution photographs and personal examination of the original documents utilizing the transcription standards used by ancient historians rather than those of the modern American historian that the Joseph Smith papers used. The practices of the two types of historians differ in a number of particulars, but might be generalized by saying that ancient historians prioritize what the scribe actually wrote on the document while American historians prioritize the perceived scribal intent. 
For this volume of the Joseph Smith Papers, the alternative, ancient standard, is arguably preferable for the following reasons. First, many debates about the documents revolve around scribal practices, but these debates are poorly served by American historian standards, is infrequent, and are better served by the ancient historian standards, where discussions about scribal practice are commonplace. Second, many of the groups of letters in the documents are clearly not English, and one cannot argue that one is following scribal intent if one cannot understand what is being written, and thus, what the scribe's intent was. In the documents in this volume of the Joseph Smith Papers, the scribe's intent and the author's intent are hotly debated. Transcribing according to the scribe's intent is begging the question and subtly predetermining the outcome of the debate. Third, the stated audience of the Joseph Smith Papers is scholars, not lay members of the church. Presumably a scholar should not be spending too much time puzzling over the spelling of behod, B-E-H-O-D, in context, but perhaps I've spent too much time working with documents having non-standard spelling, and other scholars find unusual orthography to be a serious obstacle. Fourth, interesting and perhaps important aspects of the documents may be glossed over by using the standards of the American historian. For example, the Book of Abraham manuscripts in Willard Richard's hand may have served as the printer's manuscript, but Richard's handwriting is difficult to read, and this may explain why there are numerous unnoted retouchings of letters in an unknown hand throughout the manuscripts to make words legible. Space doesn't allow listing all the problems in the volume, nor even all the problems I know of, though others, using differing standards, may not consider them errors by their standards, so a smattering from each section will have to suffice. I will address each section in turn. Introduction The volume's introduction is a fair summation of the current state of research, as far as American historians are concerned. The problem with this sort of general introduction in an area where much active research is being done is that it's bound to become out of date quickly. This introduction probably will not age well. An indication of this is that it has something of a split personality. For example, quote, the Egyptian language manuscripts created by Smith and his associates while they worked with the papyri from July through about November 1835 give the only first-hand contemporaneous evidence of how they understood the Egyptian language. But most of the Book of Abraham is not textually dependent on any of the extant Egyptian language documents. The inverse is also true. Most of the content in the Egyptian language documents is independent of the Book of Abraham. Close quote. So the only first-hand contemporaneous evidence for the translation process is independent of, and thus irrelevant to, the Book of Abraham and its translation. There's a problem with the editor's logic here that may be the result of many revisions during the volume's development. Papyri. There are more competent treatments of the papyri than presented here. The placement and grouping of the fragments on pages 6 through 7 are incorrect and should not be followed. On page 9, the fragments are presented in the wrong order. The photographs should be switched, as the lower one comes first on the papyrus. On page 16, the text claims, quote, The right half, known to scholars as fragment 4, measures at its largest 11.5 by 8 inches with a backing of the same size, close quote. 
Unfortunately, on the facing page, page 17, there are no right and left fragments. Also, scholars know the piece as Joseph Smith Papyrus 4, or P. Joseph Smith 4, not as Fragment 4. If scholars know the papyrus fragment as something, why did the editors decide not to follow suit? Likewise, quote, the upper left half, known to scholars as Fragment 2, measures 5 and 1 eighth by 10 and 1 half inches, with a backing measuring 4 and 5 eighths by 10 and 1 half inches, close quote. There is no left fragment, and if it were placed correctly, it would not be upper. Notebooks of Copied Egyptian Characters If the editor's assumptions about the translation process are correct, one would have expected that Joseph Smith and others would have copied characters before they started providing translations. The perceptive reader is left to puzzle over the placement of these two sections, but since the editors do not actually know the chronological order of the documents or the actual relation of one set to another, or even if the various sets are correctly grouped, one order is as good as another. We can, however, look at the transcriptions. Selecting one page at random, we find errors on page 35. There is no illegible character in the final line of the sum. The final numbers are the total after a subtraction. It belongs to the writing that is supposed to be the next line. The next line does not read H. Dayton. It looks more like H. Daytal. But Daytal is such an obscure word that we wouldn't expect to find it here even though the context might fit it. The photograph provided is inadequate to resolve the issue. In the lower section, for translation, read Translation, which is what is actually written on the document. Copies of Egyptian Characters The editors date the copying of Egyptian characters to early July based on their assumptions rather than any evidence. The only reference to transcribing Egyptian characters in Joseph Smith's journals is 26 November 1835, which, unfortunately, does not match with the editor's date for these documents. So the editor's theory inexplicably takes precedence over the only historical evidence we have. The document on page 47 is upside down. This has been corrected in the online version. The document on page 49 is upside down in comparison to the photograph of the same document on page 9. This might confuse some readers. The editors doubtless meant to draw attention to the characters copied in ink rather than the papyrus fragments, although this is not explicitly stated. Egyptian Alphabet Documents this date provided for the Egyptian alphabet documents by the editors does not match that provided by Joseph Smith's journals, which indicate a specific date for these documents, 1 October 1835. Earlier editors of the Joseph Smith papers assigned this date to the document, so one would expect a note explaining the change from previous conclusions in the Joseph Smith papers project. Again, transcription is an issue in this section. For this section, we pick one page at random, page 58, and note several transcription errors on lines 7, 9, 11, and 12 that include letters substituted for illegible characters and letters added to correct misspellings. For example, in line 7, before Bethko, there is no overwriting on the character, although there is some touch-up. The scribe attempted to write the B with a loop at the bottom, as on the previous line, but needed to do so with two strokes of the pen, the second of which is slightly smeared.
There are also worrying problems in the description of the documents. The editors state that the documents contain, quote, hieratic and unknown characters in unidentified handwriting, likely Joseph Smith and possibly Cowdery, close quote. I grant that the editors can specify the English handwriting on documents, but there's no way of knowing who wrote the Egyptian characters on the document. So the proposed scribal identifications are simply guesswork or speculation on the part of the editors. Grammar and Alphabet of the Egyptian Language This document has long been claimed to be the key document for the understanding of Egyptian by church leaders in Kirtland. The authorship of the document is unknown. The transcriptions here are also a problem. Again, we pick a page at random, pages 134 through 35. Lines 5, 7, 14, 15, 16, 19, 20, 27, 32, and 33 contain changes in punctuation, spellings corrected, and letters added. Book of Abraham Manuscripts The manuscripts of the Book of Abraham have been published before by one of the editors. Unfortunately, these documents are also plagued by transcription problems. Again, we use a random page, page 261 which contains transcription discrepancies in lines 1, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 15, and 16, with letters added or deleted and spellings corrected. Out of 147 words on the page, 9, or 6%, can be transcribed differently. Each of the next two pages numerically has even more. Footnotes The footnotes on the volume are sometimes suspect. The editors claim that, quote, the volume was used extensively when Joseph Smith and his associates published Facsimile II and its accompanying explanation in March 1842, close quote. The end note cited refers the reader to page 276. On page 276, the editors assert, quote, no evidence indicates that Joseph Smith studied any of the hieroglyphs from the hypocephalus in his 1835 effort to understand the Egyptian language. However, the explanation of facsimile 2 is clearly related to that effort, since some of the entries in this document borrow heavily from the grammar and alphabet volume, close quote. One could argue that the effort flows the other way around. This is an example of an unexamined and unsupported assumption of the editors. At no point do the editors provide an argument or justification for their assertion. It also contradicts the assertions of the editors in the introduction, cited above. Comparison of Characters Throughout the volume, the editors decided to give their own numbering to the Egyptian characters in the margin. There are already standard Egyptological, that is Gardner, numbers for most of these characters. It's a pity that the editors didn't use the standard scholarly conventions. The problematic nature of this appendix is illustrated on page 370 in the character labeled 3.11ab. The first, second, third, and sixth character are the same two characters, C98 plus A21A, from Joseph Smith Papyrus 1. The fourth and fifth in the list come from Joseph Smith Papyrus 11 and are not the same characters, V2 plus Z3. Presuppositions Everyone approaches a text with certain presuppositions that inform how they understand the text. It would have been nice if the editors had been more explicit about theirs. As it is, the text often leaves the reader to intuit what the presuppositions of the editors were. 
certain statements allow one to reconstruct some of the editor's presuppositions. Reconstructing presuppositions can be hazardous, but authors can avoid others reconstructing their assumptions by making them explicit. The editors assert that Joseph Smith and his associates, quote, assumed that the Egyptian language contained a series of complex systems and symbols, each of which held multiple meanings, close quote. Even though the editors cannot, quote, explain comprehensively the ways in which earlier concepts regarding the Egyptian language, such as the notion that each character represented multiple ideas, may have been inherited, used, or understood by Joseph Smith, close quote. They also assert that, quote, these attempts by Joseph Smith and his clerks are considered by modern Egyptologists, both Latter-day Saints and others, to be of no actual value in understanding Egyptian, close quote. They claim that Joseph Smith, quote, was certainly unequipped to translate the scrolls as a scholar would, close quote. The assumption seems to be that Joseph Smith got all his ideas about Egypt from his environment except correct ones. Not all of the ideas about ancient Egypt circulating in Joseph Smith's day were wrong. For example, hieroglyphic signs in the time period when the Joseph Smith papyri were produced frequently have multiple meanings. To be able to sort the issues out requires a first-hand knowledge of the intellectual content and context which, in this case, means a knowledge both of Egyptian and how it was understood in Joseph Smith's day. Unfortunately, the editors demonstrate no first-hand knowledge of works by Samuel Sharp, Gustave Sefart, Jean-Francois Champollion, or others, so they cannot set the work of Latter-day Saints, like W. W. Phelps, in its proper historical context. One of the assumptions is that the authorship of the documents included in the volume belongs to Joseph Smith. In fact, the authorship of the documents is disputed, something the volume never acknowledges. Others have put forth historical arguments that W. W. Phelps, not Joseph Smith, authored many of the documents published in the volume. These arguments are ignored. The volume should have followed the standard practice of the Joseph Smith Papers Project and put most of the documents in an appendix as disputed. For instance, in a forthcoming Joseph Smith Papers volume, a much-quoted letter from Joseph Smith to Nancy Rigdon is placed in an appendix because the editors cannot prove that it is not a forgery. The same procedure should have been followed here. If the policy is that only those documents known to be authored by, in the handwriting of, or in the possession of Joseph Smith should be included in the papers, then only the Joseph Smith papyri, Egyptian alphabet A, and the Book of Abraham manuscripts should have been placed in the volume and the rest should have been relegated to an appendix. This, however, did not happen. Another of the assumptions is revealed in the organization of the volume, although the editors state that, quote, the sequence of the creation of the Kirtland-era Book of Abraham manuscript and the various manuscripts of the Egyptian language project is unknown, close quote. Readers can easily assume a chronological order in their presentation of the material. For them, the chronological order of the documents is first the papyri, Next, the notebooks of characters, then the pages of characters, then the Egyptian alphabet, then the grammar and alphabet, then the Book of Abraham manuscripts, and finally the published editions of the Book of Abraham. The organization of the volume, while logical, implies the ordering of the documents favored by critics of the church, but this order is not necessarily supported by the dates given by the editors. If the documents of disputed authorship had been placed in an appendix, this would have solved the problem. 
This order is assumed and not demonstrated. This is the way the editors would go about producing a translation. Get a document, obtain some grammars, and after studying the grammars, produce a translation. But this is not the way that ancient languages are deciphered, and it was not the way that Champollion deciphered Egyptian. There is no particular reason to assume that it was the way Joseph Smith translated, since it was definitely not the way the Book of Mormon was produced. The editor's assumption about the order of translation is manifest in a number of ways. For example, the Egyptian alphabet documents seem to parallel Abraham 1, 24 through 25 and 31. One could argue either that the Abraham verses were produced from the Egyptian alphabet documents, or that the Egyptian alphabet documents were produced from the Book of Abraham. Because of their theories about the translation process, the editors assume the former. The fact that five verses are missing in the Egyptian alphabet documents makes it harder to account for their appearance in the Book of Abraham than if the Book of Abraham were used to produce the Egyptian alphabet. The source of the characters in the manuscripts also presents a problem. The characters in the margins of the Book of Abraham manuscripts come from Papyrus Joseph Smith 11, the characters in the Egyptian alphabet documents, and the alphabet and grammar come from Papyrus Joseph Smith 1. Because to the editors the characters are meaningless marks on the page, they pay no attention to their origin or the implications of their origins, which explains why they lump different characters from different sources indiscriminately together in their appendix and misplace some of the photographs. If the Egyptian alphabet documents were the direct source of the Book of Abraham, we would expect that the characters would coincide and have the same source, but they don't. Because the characters don't match, the efforts to match up characters in the Egyptian alphabet documents and the Book of Abraham manuscripts have to be seen as independent efforts. It also suggests that both efforts are attempts to match a previously existent Book of Abraham with different papyri, rather than stumbling attempts to decipher a particular Egyptian text. Furthermore, the editor's presuppositions dictate what can be counted as evidence. Thus, when the editors state that, quote, there is no evidence before early 1842, however, that Joseph Smith had translated more Book of Abraham material than what survives in the extant Kirtland-era manuscripts, close quote, they are ignoring a great deal of evidence that others have adduced for precisely the idea that Joseph Smith had translated more of the Book of Abraham than that at that time. They are ignoring both the evidence of the manuscripts and the journals. Joseph Smith's Kirtland period journals record him translating on 7 October 1835, 19 November 1835, 20 November 1835, 24 November 1835, and 25 November 1835. This is a minimum of five sessions. In Nauvoo, there is only a day and a half of translation. According to the editors, in Kirtland, only Abraham 1-1 through 2-18 were dictated, while in Nauvoo, Joseph Smith translated Abraham 2.19 through 5.21, a greater amount of text in only a quarter of the time. Even with the editor's naturalistic presuppositions, this requires a stretch in credulity. In these cases, the editors are driven by their presuppositions and theories, regardless of evidence to the contrary. Conclusions Given the constraints of space, this is only a sample of the types of problems and errors found in the volume. It may seem that some of these matters are mere trifles. I disagree. The bedrock of the work on the Joseph Smith Papers Project is the transcription of the documents, especially in these manuscripts, where so many of the words in the documents 
do not purport to be English, and the editors have no idea what the language may be. Accurate transcriptions are essential. It's thus disappointing that there are so many problems with the transcriptions. It's incredibly easy to make transcription errors in a document in one's own language when one is doing a quick first draft in a limited time when visiting an archive. Throw in bad handwriting in a foreign language, and the difficulties multiply. But the authors have been working on this volume for seven years. One expects better. The 213 unique instances in the documents where the editors admitted that they could not read what the scribes wrote is an indication of the difficulty in reading the documents and how often the challenge of transcription defeated the editors. Though some of these instances would defeat any responsible scholar, some of them can be read. Furthermore, many of the arguments about the translation of the Book of Abraham rest on scribal practices, habits, and tendencies. To study these properly requires much greater care in transcribing the documents and much higher standards in document transcription than evidenced in the work shown here. Anything the editors say about Egyptian language, papyri, or characters is beyond their skill and training. It's regrettable that although the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints counts several faithful Egyptologists among its membership, the editors deliberately chose not to involve them in any serious way. It is true that two of that number were given a month to peer-review the volume, and some of their suggestions were accepted. But no photographs were included in what was reviewed, nor did the Egyptologists see the appendix on the Egyptian characters. One might argue that this series is about 19th century religious history, but this volume, in particular, is about early Latter-day Saint leaders' involvement with Egyptian characters. The volume editors cannot adequately deal with early Latter-day Saints' interaction with those characters without some understanding of those characters of their own. In sum, this volume does not display the care one has come to expect from the Joseph Smith Papers Project. The editors may have followed the general guidelines of the Joseph Smith Papers Project, but the material in this volume is not like the other material in the series, and would have benefited by adapting the guidelines to the nature of the material. While it's great to have good quality images of the documents finally available to the public, the transcriptions and notes are often inadequate to the needs of the ongoing debates about the documents. One still needs to be extremely careful using the material. This means that other than legal access to the photographs, neither the serious researcher nor the layperson is in a better position than they were before the volume was published. As the online version will be updated to reflect new information, it may become, over time, the preferred version to use. Editor's Note This review was edited by the author, after initial publication, to address multiple requests for clarification. In part, these clarifications came after a substantive conversation between the author and principal figures in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. John Gee is the William Bill Gay Research Professor in the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages at Brigham Young University. This has been a recording of The Joseph Smith Papers Project Stumbles by John Gee, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Latter-day Saint Faith and Scholarship, Volume 33, 2019, read by Steve Metcalf. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed. If it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles can be found at journal.interpreterfoundation.org.
More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.